Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Final Whistle here on WSOE 89.3 FM, Elon Burlington. A little bit of technical difficulty starting off the show. Those are always fun. All right. Today, we got a great show for you. As usual, on After the Final Whistle, I am your host, Brad Clear. Um, beautiful Thursday here in Elon, North Carolina. 73 degrees, sun. Got to bring out the t-shirt and shorts. First time I've done this since October. Brought out the Jordans today. Big fan of that. Shout out to Jordan Brand. And shout out to Jordan Brand for the big release coming this Saturday. The Jordan 3 Black Cements. You know Elements Crossing Foot Locker is getting a visitor out of me for that. But what a fantastic day I've had today. Fantastic weather. The dining hall for lunch today had patty melt burgers and scallops. Scallops. Straight up scallops at X College Dining Hall. Unbelievable. But enough about me and enough about the school. We got to talk the NBA epic tank race that is coming um, for the rest of this season. We're going to talk some Ronda Rousey in WWE um, and sort of the already negative response and crowd reaction she is already receiving and she has not even shown up outside of her debut in the Royal Rumble. We'll talk about the NBA playoff races and how those are looking super exciting as well. We're going to talk about last night's two awesome games between the Sixers and Heat and the Warriors and Blazers. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about 205 Live and the emergence of that show. Um, it's revitalization uh, from really being a very, very bad show to returning to its roots and becoming the great, fantastic ring-based product that it should be. All right, so let's kick it off. We're going straight to the NBA. Um, last night was one of the best nights of the entire season, just as far as getting to sit down, watch a game on League Pass, and just get fully immersed in games. The Sixers and Heat start to finish an incredible game. The Portland Trailblazers and the Golden State Warriors start to finish an incredible game. You had the Clippers and the Celtics. That was also a great game that was pretty competitive for the majority of the game. You had a lot of large leads that had evaporated from teams like the Knicks and Wizards or the Heat over the Sixers. A lot of comebacks. It was a really, really exciting night of basketball. Um, But, you know, we're talking on this show as a day one truster of the process. um, The Sixers Heat had to be the best game of the entire night last night. Um observations from that the Philadelphia 76ers are legit and anyone who says otherwise is trying to fit a narrative that they want to see or how they want the process to play out or is in denial Um, the Sixers are two games out of the four seed in the Eastern Conference as of this show they're the best team in the entire Eastern Conference since Christmas they beat the Miami Heat a playoff team in the Eastern Conference for the majority of this season, albeit they are on a rough patch right now. But they beat them last night without Joel Embiid, their go-to franchise player. They quelled a big game from Goran Dragic and the Heat who had added Dwayne Wade. They were playing hard. They were playing with grit. They were playing with hustle. They were rebounding. They were shooting. Marco Bellinelli, their newest free agent signing from a couple days ago, was red hot. It was 4-5 or five from the field, finished with, I think, 17 points. He could not miss. The crowd was going nuts for him. He, you had Trevor Booker playing with extreme hustle and heart, getting offensive rebound after offensive rebound. They out-rebounded Miami 60-29, to 29, over 30 more rebounds. Rashawn Holmes was playing above the rim with energy. The, the absence of Embiid... You saw Holmes and Booker really step up in his absence. You saw Marco Bellinelli being a fire plug coming off the bench. Red Hot was shooting. J.J. Redick hit some clutch shots at the end of that game. You always love to see that from Redick, who can be streaky at times. And then Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons is unreal. A triple-double, and it it was a quiet... It was not a quiet triple-double, but he he, he just makes it look so easy when he is out there. He can't shoot. Yet, he can get to the rim at will with defenders who are sagging off of him by 10, 12, 15 feet at times. It's really unbelievable. 
He hit a big-time jump shot at the end of the game last night from about 21 feet, which was very nice to see. Uh, coming from a Sixers fan who wants Ben Simmons to develop that shot, he had a reverse alley-oop at one point towards the end of that game. He was very, very impressive. And if for those who want to say that Donovan Mitchell, who is a very, very good player, I'm not you know, taking anything away from Donovan Mitchell here, but he's not Ben Simmons. You can't say that Donovan Mitchell is the rookie of the year and Ben Simmons is not. You know, Ben Simmons has been producing consistently as being a triple-double threat every single time he steps on the floor since the beginning of the season. Donovan Mitchell, yes, he's a very explosive player who can dominate in getting to the rim and can score at will and is incredibly athletic. And Utah is playing out of their minds right now on a 10-11 game win streak, playing themselves into the playoff picture when they had no business doing so. But Ben Simmons is playing like an all-star. I know he's not on the all-star team, was not one of the injury replacements. He should have been. He is an elite playmaker. He has incredible size and is an unbelievably tough matchup. His skills at getting to the rim with someone who has no jump shot to respect are absolutely absurd. He affects the game more than Donovan Mitchell does, in my opinion. And I think people just don't give him the recognition because every single game he goes out there, he produces at a near triple-double level, and it's not anything super crazy, flashy, or exciting because of how consistent and solid he is, whereas Donovan Mitchell is more of a flashy, exciting type of player. It's really, I know people want to say it's close. It's not. Ben Simmons is still the same player he was at the beginning of the year and is producing as such the entire time. Donovan Mitchell has not been. Donovan Mitchell has gotten hot recently. Ben Simmons, Rookie of the Year. Philadelphia 76ers, the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference. I know they're still two games back, but I expect them to be at that four spot when the playoffs roll around. I look at who's in front of them, right? The, the Washington Wizards. The Washington Wizards really are just such a weird, weird team. They they should be much better than they are. They play, John Wall seems to be dragging them down a little bit um, before his injury. Um, him and Gortat are not getting along. The team goes through a lot of stretches where they uh, they're win a couple games, they lose a couple games. They're very streaky, not a consistent team. And even if the Sixers were to be the five seed and Washington were to be the four, I see no way the Wizards could beat the Sixers four out of seven times. Milwaukee, it's a shame. They got Jabari Parker back. They added him to that incredible team they have with Giannis and Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe, but then Malcolm Brogdon got hurt. So they're not at full strength and have not been all season. With that being said, they're at the five seed right now, one and a half games ahead of the Sixers. They are the only team that's ahead of the Sixers right now that I could potentially see ending the season as the four seed. But in still, without Brogdon there for the next six to eight weeks, with how strong the Sixers are coming on in their surging status, I think the Sixers surpass them. In Indiana, a game and a half ahead of the Sixers, I am a huge proponent of Indiana's. Fantastic team to watch on League Pass. Victor Oladipo's transformation has been unbelievable. Um, they are a fun, fun team, but they are not a better team than the Philadelphia 76ers. The Sixers are for real. The process worked. And last night was an indication of such. As far as Miami now, Miami is only a game and a half ahead of Detroit uh, in the eighth spot. Detroit, I know that they started winning four games with Blake Griffin and then they lost three. But Detroit is a significantly better team than they were before they had Blake Griffin. The Heat went through, have lost, I believe this loss last night made it eight out of 14 games that they have lost, or they've lost eight of their last 14 games. I know they added Dwayne Wade, but it seems that their sort of um, grit and hustle and outworking teams that got them to the four seed at one point, it's not having the same effect it was before. I think it is a legitimate race now between Miami and Detroit for the eighth spot. I think with Blake Griffin added to that team and with Miami faltering, easily could see Detroit surpassing Miami for that eighth spot. It's going to be tough and it's going to be tight between those two teams. You look towards the playoffs and the top of the conference. Let's focus there now. The Toronto Raptors have to hold the number one seed in the conference. Um, they need to have the home court advantage. This is a very, 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 very different Raptors team than the Raptors teams of, of last few years who have been between three, four, and five and just can't get it done past the second round. 
DeRozan has transformed his game to be more of an outside shooter and to basically, I think he's one of the top, you know, six or seven players if we're talking the discussion for the MVP. Their bench is the best bench in the NBA. Frank Van Bleet, DeLon Wright, Norman Powell, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertl, Lucas Nagira, and then you add OG Anubabi in the starting lineup. They have young, athletic, fast players who come off of that bench and they produce at a very high level for a bench unit. You have... Sergi Baca and Jonas Valanciunas as veteran frontcourt players. I love, love, love what Toronto is doing. But to ensure that they can get to the conference finals or potentially the finals, they have to get that one seed and keep the home court advantage. I think as far as them and Boston are concerned, I think they're starting to distance themselves a little bit from Boston of late. I know Boston's only two games behind them, but of late, I have not been impressed with Boston's uh, style of play. They've been getting behind. They, they've been doing this all season. They've been getting behind by a lot and coming back. But when it comes to the end of the season, the playoffs, you're not going to be able to consistently do that. I don't see them being able to surpass Toronto. And with and with Cleveland, which we'll get into in a second, I think Cleveland definitely surpasses Boston. So you're looking at Boston as a three seed. And for Toronto, they just got to stave off Cleveland and somehow stay in front of them for the one seed. They're six and a half games in front of them right now, which is probably a good enough cushion. But man, getting into the Cavs now, the Cavs since their trade deadline, they look good. Man, oh man, do they look good. Um, Last week when I was on talking about the trade deadline, the things I emphasize, versatility, youth, athleticism, shooting, lineup combination, maximization of the options that they had as far as Guys who can play multiple spots, flexible lineups. You can play big, small, shooting, fast, whatnot. We've seen all that in the last few games. We've seen Jordan Clarkson score 14 points and 17 points in the two games. He's played point guard. He's played off the ball next to George Hill. We've seen Rodney Hood come in and be able to hit shots and be a good um, secondary scorer when he is on the court. We've seen Larry Nance play at the five and really be an athletic above-the-rim center that he... um, really is and can benefit the Cavs in being. We've seen him play a little bit next to Tristan Thompson. Tristan Thompson's also stepped his game up a little bit too, you know? He's been really going hard on the offensive glass more so than he was um, previously. He seems more engaged, um, and that's definitely what you want to be seeing if you're a Cleveland Cavaliers fan or involved with the Cavs. Um, We've seen... Excuse me. We've seen... um, George Hill... George Hill, I think, does not, they don't get enough credit for that acquisition in George Hill. George Hill is a solid, solid point guard, a starting quality point guard with significant playoff experience with Indiana, with Utah. He's going to be a rock for them and a dependable veteran playoff experience player as the season goes on. I love his game next to LeBron. I love how all these guys fit around LeBron, right? You have LeBron out there, you could throw Clarkson and Hill in the backcourt. Or you could throw Clarkson and Hood. Or you could throw Hood and Hill. Or you could throw J.R. Smith and Hood. Or, excuse me, J.R. Smith and Hill. Or you could throw J.R. Smith and Clarkson. You have guys who can shoot and score around LeBron in the backcourt. And in the case when Hill is in the game, a true point guard who can pass and play make. You could play LeBron at the four and play Nance at the five, which is super athletic. Or Tristan Thompson is just a steady defensive and rebounding presence. You can play LeBron at the three, put Jeff Green in there to have two sort of um, athletic tweet, an athletic tweener in there next to LeBron with Thompson or Nance at the five. See, uh, Chetty Osman slowly becoming one of my favorite players in the whole league. Plays so hard, he makes plays, he just gets after it. He's a tenacious defender, plays with relentless energy. Love him in the three or four spot. Corver can come in and shoot threes. They've built a team that optimizes the skills of LeBron that can function in a way where LeBron is able to thrive to his fullest capabilities. He's had two fantastic games. Um, against Obviously, against Boston, he was playing great. And against OKC, he was out of his mind. The Cavs are legit now. They turned this around. Kobe Altman did an unbelievable job turning around the fortunes of this Cavs team. They have the versatility. They have the energy and the vibrancy that they needed to get. They have the shooting, youth, and athleticism. They're going to be a very, very hard team to beat in the playoffs for the Eastern Conference. Obviously, they stand no chance of beating Golden State, but 
you know, Boston, Toronto, whoever the Cavs draw in the first round, whether it's uh, Indiana, Milwaukee, Miami, Detroit, maybe the Sixers, it's going to be tough to stop the Cavs in the Eastern Conference. At this point, they've tr- definitely, in my mind, transformed themselves to being the Eastern Conference favorites. If you had asked me this last Wednesday before they had made the significant moves that they made in the trade deadline, I would have said Toronto, and then I would have said Boston number two. It, the East is the is the East is the Cavs for the taking right now. If they keep playing like this, there's no way anyone in the East can stop them. Toronto, maybe very very slight chance if if Toronto gets the one seed and has home court advantage, maybe. But man, it's going to be tough for the rest of the East. Shifting out west, last night's game, Golden State and Portland. If you love shooting and you love scoring, my God, what a game! Kevin Durant went off. He scored 50 points last night in 37 minutes on 26 shots. That's an incredibly efficient game. He is so, 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 so good. Yes, he may, may, may or may not be a snake for leaving OKC and joining Golden State and ensuring their dominance over the league for many years to come, but he is a gifted, an all-time gifted scorer an unbelievable shooter, an unbelievable offensive shot creator. It's it's truly magical at times just how he can get the ball and just create for himself or take shots with ease that look incredibly difficult and just bury with no difficulty whatsoever. His combination of size where he he's so hard to guard on the perimeter because he rises up and releases the ball at such a level where no one can get in his face. He truly is a remarkable, remarkable player. He was on last night. It was beautiful, beautiful basketball and beautiful to watch. And then on the other side, you had Portland's uh, Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard scored 44 points. Damian Lillard was playing out of his mind as well. And he scored over 50 points the other day, um, two games ago as well. So Damian Lillard, he is red hot right now. And he is the reason Portland won this game. Portland getting the 123-117 win over Golden State. This is a huge, huge win for Portland. Uh, I don't put any stock into any regular season loss for Golden State. Um, they're, they're totally fine. This is no issue for them whatsoever. But Portland, you know, they're in the sixth spot right now. They're only a half game ahead of the eight-seed uh, Pelicans, and they're only one game ahead of the nine-seed Clippers, who beat Boston last night. So, a win like this, you know, they lose that game. They're tied for ninth right now. That's a huge, huge win for Portland the West, people don't realize the West is super, super tight um, going into the end of the season here. Looking at the teams from 9 to 5, right? The Clippers are one and a half games back of the five-seed Oklahoma City Thunder. Now, when people think of the West, they think of OKC as, you know, the solid four or the solid five-seed team in the West with no issue. They're only they're one and a half games away from being the nine seed right now. One game away from being the eight seed. We're looking in the loss column here. They have the same amount of losses as Portland, Denver, New Orleans, and the Clippers do. They're only two games ahead in the loss column of the Utah Jazz, who are the 10 seed right now, and as mentioned, have won their last 11 games and are playing absolutely out of their minds thanks to Donovan Mitchell and to the Australian wonder Joe Ingles. The West is really, really tight. And if Utah can keep playing at the level that they are, they're only, look at them right now, they're only two and a half games back of OKC as well. And as I mentioned, two in the loss column. If Utah can keep playing at this level, that makes it a six-team race for five spots. Or excuse me, a six-team race for four spots, which is crazy to think of the Western Conference when we looked at uh, before the season. And as the season had been going on, you know, you had your clear-cut Rockets, Warriors, Spurs, Timberwolves, and Thunder, and then 6, 7, and 8 would somehow get divided up between Portland, Denver, New Orleans, and the Clippers. The Jazz were playing themselves in. It is tighter than teams or than people think. The West is going to be an incredible race coming down to the end of the season with that many teams jockeying for those spots and positioning as well. You do not want, if you're Oklahoma City, you have to stay between uh, the 5 or 6 seed. You cannot allow yourself with Paul George's impending free agency to fall to the seven seed or you know potentially the eight seed and have to draw Houston or Golden State in the first round and get absolutely I, yeah absolutely demolished in four or five games. That's not going to look good for Paul George. You need to have a good 
long playoff run, you need to make it at least to the second round to get Paul George to stay. I know he's had a fantastic season. I know he's loved being with Russell Westbrook. But what's going to really drive home Paul George's commitment or desire to stay with Oklahoma City Thunder, considering the significant financial limitations that will be placed upon them by re-signing him to a max contract, what the payroll will look like next year, they really, really, really need to have themselves a playoff run this year. Portland, if Portland can keep themselves at the sixth seed, I, I know the Spurs are not a flashy team and team. Everyone likes to think every year, oh, the Spurs might be beatable this year. They're not. But if you're Portland, you don't want to match up with Golden State or Houston. You know, Denver, Denver's won their last two games. Denver's kind of been off and on. I really like Denver's team. I love Jokic. Will Barton is one of the most underappreciated players in the whole league. You look at the Pelicans. The Pelicans are hanging on by a thread. They've won their last three games. They barely, barely beat Brooklyn in double overtime a couple days ago. DeMarcus Cousins is, losing DeMarcus Cousins really, really, really hurt them. I think that the Clippers are going to end up getting the eighth spot with the Pelicans dropping out of the playoff picture with Portland and Denver being six and seven in some order. I think Oklahoma City does ultimately end up as the five seed. I just, I, I know that they're so tight right now. But I would be surprised if Portland or Denver or New Orleans or the Clippers could pass Oklahoma City just based on sheer talent alone. Um, But I think the Clippers, who are looking at that nine spot right now, I know they traded Blake Irvin, but Tobias Harris has been playing very, very well for them. They have a nice, versatile team that has good depth to it. Um, They have a good mix of veterans on their team. You know, Danilo Gallinari is finally back and healthy and playing well. Lou Williams has been playing great all season. Austin Rivers, Taya Dosich is back. Avery Bradley is a great wing defender. And then obviously you still have DeAndre Jordan. Montrezl Harrell has been playing good off the bench. I think the Clippers are going to take this from the Pelicans. if, If Anthony Davis gets hurt, which we've seen in recent seasons is always a risk, then the Pelicans are done. Absolutely done, even if it's only for three or four games. With how tight this race is, they have to, they can't let themselves lose four games in a row, five games in a row, something like that. Especially with Anthony Davis's injury risk, that is a very strong possibility. It's going to be tight in the West. I'm super, super excited for the end of this season in the West and as far as how the seeding will shake up or stack up in the East. But more so than all of that, man, am I excited for. Probably, in my mind, the biggest tank race in the history of the NBA. We have a nine-team, basically, Tankapalooza. We'll call it Tankapalooza. Tankapalooza 2K18. Nine teams all vying to be as bad as they possibly can. We have the first worst team in the league to the seventh worst team right now, separated by one game. One game. That's incredible. These teams, they're going to have to play each other. These teams might be just play the same five guys for the whole game, playing 40 minutes to try to lose as hard as they can. One game difference from Phoenix to Brooklyn, who will end up being Cleveland. You have Atlanta at two, Dallas at three, who is a half game back of Atlanta and Phoenix, who are tied right now, as far as record is concerned. Orlando... Sacramento, Memphis, and then Brooklyn. And then you still have Chicago, who are three games back of the one seed, which is not much at all. But then after them, you have the New York Knicks, who are five games out of the one seed, but are only two games back of Chicago from that eight spot. And these teams are just absolutely putrid. Phoenix has lost seven in a row. Atlanta, two in a row. Dallas, two in a row. Orlando, three in a row. Memphis has lost seven games in a row. Brooklyn has lost seven games in a row. The Knicks have lost eight in a row, and that does not look like it's going to change anytime soon. What's crazy is how the fact that if you accidentally win one game that you're really not supposed to, like Chicago did uh, a few days ago, that could cost you. That could turn your season or your standings at the end of the season from being the third worst team to sixth. If you're, let's say, Dallas and you have to play Sacramento, you beat Sacramento, that can move you from three to six. It's incredible how tight this is and how, I mean, Brooklyn has no incentive here to tank, obviously, without with 
them not owning their pick and with it being in Cleveland via Boston. But they are playing very, very poorly of late. I know that they took New Orleans to double overtime. They're a very, very fun team to watch. They have been very playing very poorly. Really not the same fun, vibrant, athletic, fun team that they were in the beginning of the year. Um, I don't know if I can see them moving down to being the worst team in the league. Just based on the talent level, there's no way I can see them being worse than Phoenix or Atlanta. Probably Sacramento as well. So I would say at the worst for Brooklyn, who is seventh right now, I can see them getting to five or four. But... This is my bold prediction here. Obviously, I won't be here to be able to discuss it then, but in June, when that or in May, when that lottery happens, I think that the Brooklyn pick will jump to number one overall, giving the Cleveland Cavaliers the first overall pick in the draft, giving them the ability to draft Luka Doncic. That's the bold prediction based off of absolutely nothing at this point. That is the bold prediction. Mark it down. Write it down. February 15, 2018, after the final whistle. Brad Clear, the Brooklyn Nets pick, for, will become the first overall pick and will go to Cleveland. But looking at the rest of that group, Memphis at the sixth spot, obviously they blundered so hard at the trade deadline and not trading Tyreek Evans or even entertaining the thought of trading Marcus All. If they had done so, they would have been the worst team in the league. They have, outside of Gasol and Evans, Andrew Harrison, one of the Harrison twins, is starting for them. He's shooting 36% from three right now, which are over the last, over his last, I believe, 30 days, something like that, which is unbelievable and crazy. I didn't even know he was still in the NBA. I could barely name, you know, I could give you Tyreek Evans, Marcus Saul, Jamichael Green, Harrison, Chandler Parsons, Dylan Bro- That's six, I can name six players in the Memphis Grizzlies. That's it. They have a terrible, terrible roster, but... As a result of not trading Evans or Gasol, I think that they'll end up being 7th worst. I think Brooklyn obviously ends the season worse than them. Sacramento is at 5 right now. For Sacramento, they're, they're standing at the end of the year. It really just depends on how strongly they commit to going full young guys and not playing those veterans they still have. Um, they, got a, they bought out Joe Johnson already. I think they'll eventually buy out Vince Carter. Zach Randolph was playing really, really well in the beginning of the year. We'll see how many minutes he gets the rest of the year. But Sacramento's roster, man, that is just a giant group of young guys who are just completely inexperienced. Um, they're at five right now. They've lost they lost their last game. They're only four and six in their last ten games, which is not bad comparatively to the other teams that are in the lottery race. But they're going to be pulling out all the stops they possibly can. They're going to be playing their young guys as hard as they can, as many minutes as they can. They're going they're going to try to go to the bottom just as much as just as hard as any other team on this list will try to do. Um, also, a quick shout out with the Kings. Woj put out um, an interesting article about the 24 hours leading up to the deadline for the Cavs. Uh, Kobe Altman was orchestrating the three team trade with them and Utah, uh, Cleveland, Utah, and Sacramento. And he was talking to assistant GM Brandon Williams. Shout out to the Delaware 87ers and the process. Brandon Williams, former GM of the Delaware 87ers and chief of staff for the Sixers. But anyway, they negotiated the trade. Kobe Altman, Utah's GM, De- uh, Dennis Lindsay, you know, they were okay with it. They're ready to sign off on it. 3 a.m. that morning, Brandon Williams sends him back a memo saying they're good with the trade, but listed Giorgio's Papayanis, the former 13th overall pick in 2000, I believe 16, um, by Sacramento in the trade. Obviously, neither team had agreed to that. Both teams were furious. The Kings insisted that the- he had been mentioned in talks. He was not. So the Sacramento Kings almost pissed off Kobe Altman and Dennis Lindsay to the point where they did not want to make the tr- or where they had made them so furious by insisting on putting a player in who had not been negotiated that it almost destroyed the trade deadline for the Cavs and really would have destroyed the whole day for the entire trade deadline because the Cavs brought the excitement on that day. What ended up happening was Altman and Lindsay they split the balance of his salary and wait and then Sacramento waived Papianis. Sacramento's motivation for putting Papianis in the trade, this is the most Kings thing ever, was so that they didn't have to waive another one of their first round picks. They didn't want to have to have the public humiliation of waiving a guy that they had drafted 13th overall a couple years ago, who quite frankly had no deserving of, had no business being drafted that high. 
Good old Kings. Kings gonna Kings. Also, why was Vladdy Divac not negotiating the trade considering he's the GM? I don't know. No, I, I'm out of questions with the Kings. Going on to the rest of the teams, I think Dallas, who is at the three spot right now, could play themselves up to four or five. They have Wesley Matthews. They have Harrison Barnes. They still have Dirk. Based on talent level alone, I think they got more talent than Sacramento does. So I think they can play themselves up there. I think Orlando, who is at four right now, you know, obviously Aaron Gordon's been hurt for a while. Anytime he feels any sort of banged up, they'll be resting him for sure for at least a game or two. Um, but, you know, they have Aaron Gordon. They have Evan Fournier. They have Mario Hazonia, who's playing really, really well this year. Really coming out and emerging um, this year in the, uh, I believe this is the fourth year of his contract. Yeah. They still have, well, Nikola Vucevic is, is hurt as well. So they're a depleted roster, but again, they have more talent than Sacramento does as well. So right now, I see them, I could see them finishing the year at four with Dallas moving to the five, the fifth worst team, Memphis moving to being the seventh worst team. So yeah, we'll go Memphis seventh, Brook, uh, Sacramento sixth, Brooklyn fifth, Orlando fourth. No. Dallas 6th, oh my goodness, Memphis 7th, all right, let's start this over, Memphis 7th, Sacramento 6th, Orlando 5th, Dallas 4th, Atlanta, all right, whatever, forget it, but we'll have Phoenix and Atlanta, we're 1 and 2 right now, I think they'll stay in those two spots, Phoenix's defensive efforts have been absolutely putrid all season, that has not changed. Devin Booker had a hip injury. He's missed, I believe, over seven games at this point. Anytime he feels somewhat banged up, somewhat with a little bit of pain anywhere, he's missing multiple games. I think Phoenix finishes the season as the second worst team in the league. I think Atlanta, as I said in the beginning of the year, Atlanta I still think will finish as the worst team in the NBA. They bought out Bellinelli. I think they'll buy out Dwayne Dedman. You know, they still have Dennis Schroeder and Kent Bazemore, but this team has no depth, very little quality of player on their team. I think they're the worst team in the league and will end up as such with Phoenix second. I think that Sacramento gets themselves to third. I think that um, <clears throat> Dallas goes to fourth. I think Brooklyn goes to fifth, Orlando to sixth, Memphis to seventh. There we go. I think that the Knicks will play themselves to eighth. I just don't see them being able to get to the top seven because they've already won 23 games, even though they've lost their last eight games and will lose many, many more moving forward. I think Chicago, you know, through Zach Levine or through Laurie Markkinen, will win themselves a couple games that they shouldn't, as they've already done, getting themselves to ninth. After that, you have the Lakers pick is right now at 10th. That's going to go to the Sixers. They're very neck and neck with Charlotte as far as 10 and 11 are concerned. Um, neither team is going to be able to get higher than one of those two spots. So, yeah, this is going to be an epic, 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 epic tank race. The The sheer volume of teams, the tightness of the race, we've never seen this before. The efforts that will be gone to for these teams to lose games is going to be astronomical. And I think what it really does is it's going to test... Um, Adam Silver had put in before the end of the season or before the season started sort of regulations and rulings as far as, um, resting players are concerned, you know, this is going to put that to the test or, or is the NBA going to really enforce the resting player rules when it does not involve national primetime matchups with top notch teams? You know, we shall see with this man. I, I, I this is going to be must watch league pass when a team like Atlanta has to play Orlando or Dallas and Sacramento, or Memphis and Phoenix, um, Chicago and the Knicks. Teams are going to want, obviously the players are not playing to lose, but just the repercussions that could come from one loss to either of these two teams, or, or either of these teams winning, it's incredible. The, the margin of error is so slim that it's really unprecedented just how incredibly bad and how incredibly close and how incredibly incentivized, except for Brooklyn, all these teams are to get as close as they can to the number one spot. 
obviously with this being the last year of the current lottery system with next year's reform, really tanking away the sort of uh, incentive to get as far to the bottom of the lottery as you can, considering the increased odds um, from spots three to eight and whatnot, or three, four, moving forward and whatnot. So yeah, if you're watching League Pass, you notice these games, you got to watch these nine teams, man. This is going to be an absolute all-out tankapalooza for 2018. All right, about a half hour in here after the final whistle on WSOE 89.3 FM, Elon Burlington, or on podcasts.com if you're listening later. Um, Obviously, your host, Brad Clear. Moving on to our second topic, probably the last topic of the show before we get into the shout-outs to end. Um, And this topic is sort of interesting. This is Ronda Rousey. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot of press and... Pop and publicity surrounding when she came out after the uh, women's Royal Rumble match, pointed at the WrestleMania sign, note, uh, you know, signaling she was here, she was going to be at WrestleMania, blah, blah, blah. You know, of course, you know, right after 30 women had just gone out there and fought for an hour to get a title shot at WrestleMania, and all she has to do is come out and point at the sign, but whatever, I don't make the decisions. Um, this past Monday on Raw, Kurt Angle came out and said, you know, before he got into his gist of the promo as far as Jason Jordan, Seth Rollins, and whatnot, said that Ronda Rousey will be at the Elimination Chamber, Elimination Chamber pay-per-view a week from Sunday to sign her WWE contract at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, which, by the way, is where she had her last ever UFC fight, where she lost in under a minute to Amanda Nunes. It's going to be weird for her walking back in that building. Um, but the big story here, Angle mentions her name, you know, he makes a big deal of it. Ronda Rousey's going to be here or whatever. Half the crowd did not care. And half the crowd booed. And she has not shown up outside of the Women's Royal Rumble. But you can already see the crowd does not want to cheer her. The crowd does not want to see her. The crowd has no reason to want to like her. Ronda Rousey is obviously serving as an enormous mainstream tool for the WWE for WrestleMania season and moving forward. They're paying her, I'm sure, an enormous amount of money. It definitely costs an enormous amount of money to license her entrance music. Um, I forget the show that it's the theme song for, but she used in UFC, obviously, to use it week to week to week. That's incredibly expensive. This is a high uh, financial investment for them. And the crowd, she hasn't even shown up outside of pointing at a sign once. And the crowd is completely turned on her already. Or they're completely indifferent, which is the worst thing you could want. And according to rumored WrestleMania plans, you know, she's going to be teaming up with an unknown male superstar against Triple H and Stephanie McMahon in a big tag team match. People are not going to want to see this match. They're not going to want to see Ronda Rousey be the heroic babyface taking down Stephanie McMahon. They're not going to want to see Stephanie McMahon wrestling. They're not going to want to see Triple H wrestling with Stephanie McMahon in a tag team match as this is planned to be. The problem here is that Ronda Rousey serves, as I said, as a public mainstream tool, but does not serve as a tool that caters to WWE fans. Why should a WWE fan want to cheer for Ronda Rousey? Okay, she was there the first time. She re- she debuted. She pointed at the sign. Cool. There's some novelty there. It's new. So you're like, oh, cool. Ronda Rousey's here. So you get excited and you get reacted to it. You see her every... if you, When she starts to show up full-time, I'm not sure the full-time nature of this full-time deal. I'd be stunned if she's there doing live events Friday, Saturday, Sunday night like the rest of the roster does. But where's the novelty in Ronda Rousey after three or four weeks, right? You know, if she's just coming in and beating everyone... You know, and she's treated as she's above the women's roster, which it seems like it's going to end up being. That's kind of a slap in the face to all the women that are already on the roster and the crowd are invested in. And it's almost going to probably come across as her being kind of shoved down everyone's throat. You know, not every WWE fan is a UFC fan. Yes, they know who she is, but just because she was big in UFC and was an enormous astronomical mainstream draw years ago does not mean that's going to translate to the WWE now. If 
and not if they're definitely going to initially promote position her as the big time babyface who takes down the evil authority figure. People are sick of that authority figure. They don't want to cheer Ronda Rousey. WrestleMania time, at WrestleMania, the crowds let you know what they want, let you know what they think of you. The smarks are out and about. They do not care who they're supposed to cheer, who they're supposed to boo, and whatnot. She's going unless she's going to get booed mercilessly at WrestleMania. And yes, they could springboard off of this and turn her into the monster heel like Brock Lesnar beating everyone. Hey, maybe they even put Paul Heyman with her. But that doesn't solve the fact that people are just not into her. And the only way she's going to get cheered, if the plan for her is to go in a tag team match against Stephanie McMahon and Triple H, and to be the one who defeats Asuka's undefeated streak, which she's built up for multiple years... And to come in and or likely do that, and to probably eventually have a big time match with Charlotte Flair, and to be able to just come in and point at the WrestleMania sign after all the women before her competed for an hour in the Women's Royal Rumble match, and you still want to position her, position her as a babyface, you have one option, and that is to team her up at WrestleMania with Braun Strowman. In doing that you would accomplish two things. One, you would get Ronda Rousey cheered as a product of being with the hottest, most entertaining, funniest, best thing going in the entire world of professional wrestling today. Two, Ronda Rousey's match, which which is definitely going to be the semi-main event of WrestleMania, that's going to get enormous publicity on ESPN, Yahoo, CBS Sports, Fox Sports 1. You name a mainstream outlet, Sports outlet, news outlet, whatever, it's going to cover that. By product of being with Ronda Rousey and her match being a mainstream site to see, you will turn Braun Strowman into a mainstream known name, known name, because people will see Braun Strowman, this giant, incredible being who is incredible in the ring, just comes in and destroys people and roars and just creates carnage. It's awesome. He's like a cartoon character come to life. You would turn him into a mainstream star. I think by putting Ronda Rousey with Braun Strowman, obviously getting her cheered, which is going to be their biggest priority, they would be turning, they would be able to expose Braun Strowman to such an audience that no one had any idea of who he was before, and they will say, hey, that guy's awesome. That guy is really cool. I want to see this guy more. You know, maybe he ends up on late night, maybe he ends up on SNL, or just being shown on ESPN where he does something incredible by throwing around or destroying Triple H. It is of more benefit to turn Braun Strowman into this mainstream recognizable superstar than it is to do anything with Ronda Rousey. Obviously, they see it differently, but in teaming Ronda Rousey with Braun Strowman for the benefit of getting her cheered, you would be turning Braun Strowman into a known mainstream recognizable name, and it would save that match from being a complete train wreck and dumpster fire that would be booed to smithereens by the crowd. You know, who else could you put with her to get her cheered, you know? The Rock, is he going to wrestle again? I know, I'm not so sure. He individually would get cheered, but as we've seen with Roman Reigns in the Royal Rumble in 2015, putting him with someone else and getting the rub of The Rock onto them does not necessarily get them cheered. Roman Reigns knows that. Putting her with Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle is Kurt Angle. He's a legend, but he has not... He Kurt Angle is not going to get Ronda Rousey cheered. No chance at that. I, I, they really, really, really got to put Braun Strowman with her. Just the possibility of making Braun Strowman a big-time star, you cannot pass that up. Um, but I really, really, really am concerned for how Ronda Rousey is going to react to the inevitable segment at the Elimination Chamber where she shows up. The crowd is not going to respond favorably to her, you know? If she gets booed in her first-ever promo... How is she going to handle it? Is she going to maintain her composure? Is she going to try to turn on the crowd initially? You know, how is she going to handle it? You know, it's very, very difficult to be in the middle of the ring, not having ever done a promo before, and for the crowd to completely react in the opposite way of which they're supposed to to you, which I think is what's definitely going to happen. So how she handles it, 
where she goes when the crowd reaction becomes significant, which I fully expect it to become significantly negative towards her. It's going to be very interesting to see. They just can't have her come in and be this... She's going to come in and be this world beater who just destroys everyone. And people just don't want to see her be positioned as the female Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar has an enormous pedigree in wrestling and is a fantastic, fantastic wrestler. Maybe Ronda Rousey will be that. Who knows? But people are not going to want to see that initially. And that's what's going to happen. It's a recipe for disaster unless she's put with Braun Strowman at WrestleMania. But then again, that's only a temporary fix for just that one night albeit with the potential to turn Braun Strowman into an enormous star that he deserves to be. Otherwise, in WWE, I think one thing that has really, really taken a huge step up recently in the last few weeks, 205 Live. Um, It was really a dead, dead show when it was, you know, really its entire existence in that 10 p.m. slot behind SmackDown, not a result of the guys on it. The guys on it, fantastic wrestlers and characters, you know, Neville had the best work of his whole career. He couldn't make that show good. Enzo Amore, he's gone now. Obviously, it's reasons we're not going to get into. The show was not good with him. Now, they're doing the huge Cruiserweight tournament going towards WrestleMania with Rockstar Spud, now known as Drake Maverick, as the GM. They returned to their roots, which made the Cruiserweight Classic the success that it was. And that's pure wrestling. Long it's a 45-minute show, long, two long matches, a couple backstage segments or interviews, maybe like two. It's a beautiful, beautiful 45 minutes of wrestling, just great in-ring storytelling, great in-ring prowess and product, and that's what the Cruiserweight division has to be built on. You can see the you know storyline and character whatnot on main television with guys who are better than those guys are. You can see the cruiserweight style in some of the top guys like DJ Styles, like Finn Balor, like Seth Rollins, high-flying guys. You have to let these guys showcase their fullest capabilities like they did in the cruiserweight classic, which is what made it such a success to the point that they created a cruiserweight show. I would even argue that the first round of the cruiserweight tournament that we've seen the last couple weeks has been better than the first round of the cruiserweight classic. You know, Cedric Alexander, Roderick Strong, um, next week, Buddy Murphy, Kalisto, all of these incredible wrestlers. <clears throat> Mustafa Ali next week. Um, Mark Andrews won this week. There's such an incredible array of talent, and they're taking advantage of it to such an extent that it just makes 205 Live nearly a perfect 45 minutes of wrestling. You know, you had Drew Gulak come out this past week after Drake Maverick told him to ditch the comedy act. He comes in there and he kills, basically kills Tony Nese, destroys him in an uncomfortable beating. You have characters transforming to their roots. It's becoming solely about wrestling, which is what a wrestling show should be. Solely about the in-ring product and performance. 205 Live has very quietly been the best... Ah, that's a bit of a stretch. I'll go with the second best show on WWE programming ever since... They um, stripped the title from Enzo Amore and went to this tournament format. Triple H now running the show. Maybe that's a result of him. Ha- you know, it, it, the credit has to go to him in the way, in the sense that he is running it. And since he has started running it, it has become this incredible show. But 205 Live, if you are not watching it, and if you are still sleeping on 205 Live and dismissing it, you got to switch back. You got to watch 205 Live every single week. Um, Drew Gulak, Tony Nese was an incredible match. Roderick Strong and Hideo Itami was an awesome, stiff, hard-hitting, vicious match. Next week, Buddy Murphy against Jack Gallagher, right? Mustafa, or against uh, Arya Davari, excuse me. And then Mustafa Ali against Jack Gallagher. Just, these are great matches. This is going to be the format of 205 Live for in, for the next, at this point, month and a half until WrestleMania. Don't sleep on 205 Live. Watch this show every week on the network, WWE Network at 10 o'clock. Behind Monday Night Raw, which has been absolutely on fire recently, it is the best show in WWE programming. And switching into the last point here, SmackDown Live, what has happened to this beautiful show? It has gone to crap. I don't know where it went wrong or what the issue is, but SmackDown Live has been really, really, really poor probably the last three to five shows. It's almost like 205 Live. Once it became good, that terrible show that 205 Live was switched to being the terrible show that SmackDown is. They almost like did a role reversal. 
And it's also crazy that now SmackDown Live is so bad, and Monday Night Raw has become a very, 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 very good show week in and week out. Um, I don't know what they got to do to get SmackDown Live back on track before WrestleMania. I really think SmackDown's roster has gotten incredibly stale. I think the show is too short. Two hours is not enough time for the amount of talent that are on the show. All the women kind of get thrown into one segment. Guys have rushed um, little segments or backstage interviews here and there. You can't really fully get stars on TV for the amount of time they need to be week in and week out. Obviously, it's not going to be more than a two-hour show. But when it time when the time comes after WrestleMania, they need to do a full-on draft, get some new main eventers in the scene on Raw, and just really just reboot and refresh the SmackDown Live roster around AJ Styles uh, in the Usos in April because SmackDown Live has gone stale. It is no longer an enjoyable show. And it's really a chore to sit through every single week, and it's really a shame to say with how good SmackDown Live was um, in the last year and a half since the draft split, or since the draft and the brand split. All right. This has been a fun, fun show here after the final whistle on WSOE 89.3 FM, Elon Burlington, or on podcast.com if you're listening afterwards. Um, I am Brad Clear. I've had a great time giving you this show here, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m., Thursdays, you can hear after the final whistle every single week in that time frame, 6 to 7 p.m., obviously switching from the normal time of last semester from 6 to 7 p.m. on Mondays. Um, We'll be back next week. Of course, topics to be determined. Last thing to go before I go, we got to give the shout out. I already sort of gave it at the beginning of the year or beginning of the show, excuse me, but Jordan Brand. Shout out to Jordan Brand. Jordan Brand had really not been doing well with their retro shoes. Probably as far as as far as my tastes are concerned, I love the Jordan Threes. Easily my favorite Jordans, the Jordans ever. Um, still buying the LeBron Eight V Twos over the White Cement Jordan Threes in 2011 because my shoes still fit from then. Deciding to when I had the chance to buy the White Cement Threes, I chose LeBron Eight V Twos instead, and I. Kid you not by saying this, that's one of the largest regrets of my entire life. It's pretty pathetic, but is what it is. Um, and now this year, you know, the Jordan 3s, you know, I'm rocking Jordan 3s right now, the South Grade Jordan 3s, and now they're coming out with the Black Cements. Uh, this Saturday, they came out with the uh, Justin Timberlake collection at the Super Bowl, and we'll have a few more releases with that. They came out with the Free Throw Line um, Jordan 3s on Wednesday, only in California, unfortunately. But... Shout out to Jordan Brand for bringing back the Jordan 3s. I know it's the 30th anniversary of the shoe this year, but that's a shoe that hadn't released uh, a retro in seven years, and it's about time that they're back. Shout out Jordan Brand for bringing back the Jordan 3s. Shout out to you, the listener, for listening to the show since 6 o'clock or on podcast.com. We'll be back at you next week, 6, 7 p.m., Thursday, WSOE 89.3 FM, Elon Burlington. This is after the final whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.